Well, good morning. It's a great day. Every Sunday I've preached so far in California, it's rained. It's awesome. I feel like it's the joy of, of what I bring. I told Micah I was really mad at him because last Sunday at dinner, he said there's wild parrots in California, and I can't believe I haven't gotten in a wreck driving around looking for wild parrots as I drive. And so uh, I'll jump back up here. Um, thank you, sir. And so this morning as I was walking in, I was so anxious to see wild parrots. Um, <clears throat> I haven't seen any wildlife that I know of uh, since I've been here, so uh, that's kind of different for me. Uh, we enjoy wildlife, we enjoy outdoors, and, and just different things like that. If you have your Bible, find your way to Luke's Gospel in chapter 7. We'll get there in a minute, but before we dive in, I'm just, the thought process to me that... Um, in this two-week sermon series of Who is Jesus, part of the description or understanding of who Jesus is, it comes into this context that sometimes Jesus has become so familiar. And familiarity can do a lot of great things. I mean, it can do great things, and you become familiar with your home, and so you get to do things in your house that only you can do. You might like this paint, and somebody else might think it's repulsive, but it's your home. You can do whatever you want. It's familiar. You get, a, you get used to those things. And sometimes familiarity brings excitement. My wife was with me last week, and she flew out on Tuesday. Uh, here in a few hours, I'm counting them down, I get to wrap my arms around her again. I'm excited about that. I get to have that. I have four munchkins that are going to... Um, it's always a gamble of what they'll do when dad gets home. A lot of times they will tackle me and hug me, but there has been times I've walked into my house with silly string and confetti and getting shot the whole time. And so uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. But I can't wait to hold them, to be around them, because I'm familiar. I'm used to that. But more often than not, familiarity kind of brings a boredom aspect to it. In some form or fashion, I've, I've known about Jesus my whole life a figure of Jesus, not the real, but I mean, as a kid, as we went to church periodically, not uh, very often. It was kind of, it's kind of like the uh, three little bears scenario with Goldilocks. It, the weather had to be just right for us to go to church. If it was too bad, we stayed home. If it was too good, we went to the lake. It had to be just right to go to church. So I've known of Jesus But I would love to be introduced to him afresh and anew so often. And just that excitement, that adrenaline, that moment that I gave my life to Christ. And, and sometimes we just become so familiar that we lose the awe factor of who he is. You've read the stories. You've heard the sermons. And so it's kind of like I've been there and I've done that. Limitations is written about 580 years before Christ. It's in the time when Israel is destroyed and Judah is being overwhelmed and people are in exile and there's a craziness going on. And Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end and they, ne they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's in a season where there was no king, no leader, no, no rhyme or rhythm to their life. And yet God's goodness, that awe was overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever heard or seen the, the new show, the series called The Chosen. My family and I, we love The Chosen. If you haven't heard of it or seen it, you need to. There's a couple of them in the second season. I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. 
but there's some really good things that are going on. I remember when that first season came out and as a family, we would watch it and we would gather together and we're watching and I love watching it, but I really loved watching my family watch it. And there's a scene in the first season where Jesus has just a handful of disciples with him and they're walking down the road and, and there's a woman they're engaged in a conversation with. And then all of a sudden a man with leprosy comes approaching the crowd and everyone else is screaming and yelling. And they're saying, get away, get away, get away. And Jesus does what only Jesus does in the character. He steps toward the man with leprosy. And he reaches out and he does the, the taboo thing of the day and he touches him. And their people, his crowd, his disciples are yelling and they're just, they're losing their mind. And Jesus touches the man with leprosy. And the, they do a great job with film, and, and the leprosy is, is falling off of him. And he, you can visually see the man being healed at the touch of Jesus. I scan the room. My middle boy is, and I get teary when I talk about it, he is crocodile tears with the biggest smile on his face at the same time. And he just shakes. And he says, Dad, I can't stop crying. Why is that not different than every day that we walk with Christ? Why do we get so familiar that, that we lose the awesome inspiration of who he really is? I'm going to have a quiet time. I'm going to open the word of God, the voice of God that spoke, and it came to be, and I kind of go, mm, wasn't much there today. And I come to this place that I get so familiar that I, I lose the, the awe when I read the word of God. And so guess what happens? I lose the awe anticipating what he's going to do in my life today. So I put myself back on the throne. And I kind of walk in this mentality that I'm good, I'm great, I can do whatever I want, how I want, when I want. And I miss all that God has for me. In your Bible in Luke chapter 7, you'll see four amazing stories God, Jesus is walking and he meets these four people, four groups for the very first time. And the first one is the centurion man and he heals his servant. So that guy sees Jesus as healer. Then there's that widow who's burying her son and he brings him back to life. And so she sees Jesus as life. The next are some disciples of John coming and asking the question, like, are you it? Are you the one? Is that who you really are? And so they see Jesus as faith. And there's a sinful woman that sees Jesus as forgiver. It's only in Christ can you have healer, life, faith, and forgiveness. And so often we miss them. So today we're going we're gonna to camp out on that second story of that widow. This one's usually skimmed over and skipped over and ran across, and we're going to spend some time in here in this story. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 7, verse 11. It says, Soon after, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And they drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And then, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched her. And the buyer, and the, he touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. 
And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And God had visited his people. And the report about him spread throughout the whole Judea and all the surrounding country. Man, that's an overwhelming thought in the story as it takes place. So let's, let's try our hardest, as much as we can, today, here in this place, to jump back into first century and put ourselves in this story. So when we talk about this place called Nain, look what the verse says. It says, a town called Nain. The reason Luke, the author, had to say that is because that name of that town was not familiar to them, just as it's not familiar to us. I'm from Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, we have a lot of Native American town names. I live in Sepulpa, Oklahoma. There's two stories that goes behind it, but one that makes us feel better about ourselves, it was named after an Indian chief. Another, a vegetable. So we're trying to figure out which one it is. Kind of like a sweet potato. But if I said Choctaw, Chickasha, I'll pick on my friend, Durant, you wouldn't have a clue if I'm making sounds up, if I'm talking about places or locations. And so I would have to say there's a town called Choctaw. You don't have to say that about Los Angeles, do you? Worldwide, it's familiar, and everybody knows that there's a place called Los Angeles, and there's half a dozen people that live there. Here, they, they don't know that it's even a town's name. This town's still in existence today, different name, very similar, and it has roughly 200 people in it. So we're talking a very small, what we would consider insignificant town that is labeled in the gospel. Don't miss those things. Those are, those are key insights to us to understanding that, that this is really kind of a dot on the map. Jesus isn't going to go there and, and build an army. He's not going to recruit thousands of people to join his mission. And it seems random. And it seems kind of like, why would we do a day and a half journey to Nain from Capernaum? Why would we, why would we walk around the Sea of Galilee and come, not even on a travel corridor, why would we come here? There's a reason And we'll see that. Verse 12. They drew near to the gate, and there's a man who had died was being carried out. So, I don't know what, I haven't seen any here, but I don't know what a funeral procession looks like in Los Angeles. In Oklahoma, there's usually a police car, the hearse, and a long line of cars following, all with their flashers on. And everybody pulls off to the side of the road and lets them go by. I'm assuming no one pulls over to the side of the road and lets anybody by here in Los Angeles. I got honked at twice. I felt so accomplished this week. (laughs) So everyone knows what a funeral looks like. Every culture has seen it, and it's sad. Every funeral is sad. There's some moments for Christians that are hopeful and glory, and it's exciting, but it's also sad. But, But this one is a little different, because the text says it was the only son of his mother. Like, you know, a funeral is sad, but parents aren't supposed to bury their children. That's not how it's supposed to work. Like it, that kind of takes it to a different level of sad. My great-grandmother lived to be 104, so my goal is 105. And so she buried every one of her children, the, one of those being my grandfather. The last two, my grandfather and my great-uncle is what I'd call him, I guess, 
she took care of while they all lived in the same nursing home. One night she crawled in the bed of her son and held him as he passed away in her arms at 100 plus years old. This is this scenario that this is really, really hard. It's really, really difficult. And no one in the crowd that's following Jesus knew that. And she's not only just riddled with tragedy of losing her son, she's a widow. She's already lost her husband. In this culture, today it's very different, but in this culture, a woman who lost her husband and a male heir, we don't know if she has daughters or not, but that didn't make a difference. They lost everything. They don't get to keep the house. They don't get to keep the land. They don't get to keep the livestock. So she's not just taking her only son out to bury him. She's taking all of her hope that she's ever had. This is the definition of what hopelessness looks like. We have a bad day. It doesn't kind of narrow into this category. She is taking everything out and she's burying it all because this is all that she has. And it seems kind of a miss to us. We've read the story. Bummer. Bad deal for her. And she's carrying everything she has to out to what seems nothing. And this is what Jesus does. He walks into the scene in the middle of this insignificant place, and he sees what no one else sees. People behind him, doesn't, they don't know that she's a widow. They don't know this is her only son, but he sees all that. He discerns all that. And if we were just playing the game, and we would say something like, wow, what a coincidence. What a coincidence that like we left Capernaum a day and a half ago and it was the same time it mapped out perfectly. Man, this woman is lucky that she met Jesus at this particular time. I'm assuming rural Israel didn't have great cell phone service so no one could plan this out very well at all. I think that's some of the things that we miss when we read scripture. It wasn't luck. It wasn't coincidence. It was the God who is the one who spoke everything into existence and he, and he speaks and he knows and he knew there was going to be a woman at this particular time in an insignificant town that had no hope that she needed to see him. Verse 13. And the Lord saw her and had compassion on her. And he says, do not weep. Now we read that. And again, it's familiar and it's comfortable and it's good. Put in context. When someone dies, it's hard. We as humans, we struggle with, with tragedies and death. And so when we go to someone that has lost a loved one, what is 90% of the things that come out of our mouth? Ah, mm, I don't know what to say. Here's a cake. Like here's pie. Here's, here's comfort food. And we hug, but it, words are hard. But there is a list of things not to say. And stop crying would be at the very top of that list. We have four kids. I prayed the hardest, most intentional prayers in my life when we were in the labor and delivery room. Lord, please do not let me say anything stupid to my wife. And he was grateful. I only did it once. Stop crying. Seems really cold and harsh. I mean, put in that context. You walk up and there's a funeral and the first thing, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't, they don't have the end of the gospel for them. They don't have a clue who he is. <clears throat> he comes to a town that he's never been to. They've never seen him. And he says, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Like, you can get over this. Don't weep. Stop crying. And then 
he becomes socially awkward. He touches the buyer. You would say coffin. Think of a, a, a platform, whether a stone or wood, and the body's on top of it, just with a sheet over it. Now, the people that's with Jesus, there's some big wigs, there's some no wigs, there's everything in between. And they haven't figured out who he is. Is he a prophet? Is he a priest? But as soon as he put his hand on that casket, he was ceremonially unclean. There's a week-long process to get over that moment to be clean before he can come out in public and everything. So they go, okay, he can't be a prophet or a priest because he doesn't know the rule. Like he, he's missed it. And so he touches the coffin and everybody stops and they look at him and then he speaks to the dead man. That's weird. Like I've been in, I have preached hundreds of funerals. And I've been in homes and hospitals and funeral homes with lots and lots of people that have passed away. And I hear all sorts of things. I've been with so many people in that moment when they take their last breath and the family cries and they're mourning and they'll say things. I've been at the funeral home days later or at the, at the funeral itself and people cry and they do stuff. But no one speaks to the dead person as if they will respond to what they're saying. And if they ever did, the pastor would be gone first. I would have left. And then he speaks to this person that's on the, in the coffin, on the casket, however you want to look at it. He answers by sitting up. And this is what I mean by Jesus has become so familiar to us. We've lost the awe. Because a few minutes ago, I read the story and no one took an audible gasp of, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. No one cheered and celebrated as a touchdown was made or victory was taking place because we were kind of familiar. My assumption is you came to church today to hear something about a person that had died and came back, namely Jesus. Right? We, we've come, and awe has been lost because we're so familiar. That excitement of losing that first love. And, and like it goes back to my example a minute ago, my wife and I will celebrate 20 years of marriage this May. And we dated, this is horrible advice, don't ever do this. We dated for five years before we were married. My theory now is first date should be a proposal. That's free, guys. You can have that. But we've known each other since we were 14. And I'm going to be super excited to see her tonight. So often I miss that in the text, in the scripture, in my quiet time, in my disciplines, because I just kind of make them to-do list and not a relationship with my king, with my savior. He speaks. And so verse 16, fear seizes them. And in that moment of fear, of excitement and awe, they praise God. They glorify God in that. And then, then Jesus is spread throughout the whole town. He's spread and they talk about him forever. Let me go back to two words that are so familiar that we kind of miss them when we just read through them. They're found in verse 13. And these are two words that really are very, very, very important to you and I to understanding why Jesus matters. Words that we use often in our language and we just say them. But verse 13, it says, and when the Lord saw, he had compassion. 
Luke gives these great descriptions. In chapter one, he gives kind of, if you take the text of chapter one, he gives kind of a title for Jesus. And that title is the son of the most high. Chapter two, he's the savior. Chapter three, he's the beloved son. Chapter four, he's the anointed one. Chapter five, he's the teacher. Chapter six, chapter five, he's the healer. Chapter six, he's the teacher. In chapter seven, he's the compassionate Lord. Luke is the only gospel writer to speak of Jesus as Lord before the resurrection. Everybody else speaks of him as Lord after. But Luke says here in this context, the first time he is Lord and he's compassion. Let's do the first word, Bible study, Bible word study on the word compassion. In the Greek, that word carries with it much more rich meaning than it does our English. It's kind of the, the action, the feeling to an emotional scenario. And I don't know how many times you've, you've had this, but you've seen something, you've been there, and, and all of a sudden there's a, there's a change of your physical body. Maybe it's a, a tragic accident, and you just, you just feel inside of you that, that compassion, or you're in a relationship and things aren't going well, and you're fighting, and you're just like, I'm sick, or in a relationship that's just beginning, and you're excited, and you're, you know, lovesick, and you don't eat, you don't do any of those things. I had a friend, he said, when I finally met my wife, I lost 50 pounds in the first two months. I was so in love that I couldn't eat. I was like, that's a great diet plan. You ought to package that and sell it. But this compassion, this word here, listen to what it says again. He had compassion on her. So here's in short what it really means. Jesus felt in that moment everything that that mother was feeling. He felt it. Because he's Lord, he experienced it. He understood it. He understood it more than she even knew. This shouldn't surprise us because Isaiah prophesied this is what he was anointed to do. Jesus came and he was anointed. Anointed means you are set apart by God, empowered by God to do the task that God has given you. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See, Jesus was anointed. He was anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. I bet every one of us at some point in time have had a broken heart that we didn't really take it to Jesus. We were just sad and frustrated or mad or angry. We're just kind of inside broken and well, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. And we don't take it to Jesus, but that's, that's what he was anointed for. When we, when we mourn and we go through that process, he, he is anointed to bring comfort and healing. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn or they shall be comforted. And I'm telling you, we as a, as a culture do not mourn very well. We go to a funeral and I meet with a family and they, it's business. I mean, funeral is a, is a business. And so they've got to, they got to have a funeral home. They've got to have caskets, got to have flowers and headstones and a burial site. I mean, it's a business and they got to go through and there's just a lot of things to do. And then they'll come meet with me and we'll, we'll walk through the whole service. And, and I just said, now listen, now, now you're finished. Now you, now you mourn. We as a church or as a group of people, your community, we're going to bring you food. We're going to bring you paper goods. We're going to supply some basic needs so that you can do nothing but mourn. And they don't. The day the funeral happens, they come in and they've got to hold it together. 
because they're going to sit down front and everybody's going to come by them and they've got to kind of keep things together. And they don't mourn, but they will. They'll catch them by surprise someday. And they'll just wreck them. But we don't, we don't pause long enough to mourn. And here in the text, in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Every single one of us is going to have death. That's Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the reason why the, the son died was because of sin. The reason why her husband died was because of sin. The reason why every person on the planet dies is because of sin. So every single person struggles with sin. The proof is in the end result. We all die. It's, it's perfect math. 10 out of 10 die. And so we have to wrestle with that. But what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with death? How do we handle it? Paul makes it really clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have to take death to him. You have to take death to Jesus. He felt her misery and sorrow. He had compassion. But see, it also, the verse says in 13, he is Lord. He is Lord. He's Lord. You have lordship over things in your life. If you're not a kid, as mine are, but at some point in time, you're going to have lordship over your dinner plate. You can eat what you want, and you cannot eat what you don't want. My kids are not lords. You get what is fixed, and you don't get to complain. You go to dinner, and you eat, and I don't want that. I move that, and I do this. Maybe you have lordship over your home. You can pick and choose what you want. But Colossians chapter 1 talks about his lordship. Verse 16 and following says, For by him all things were created. That's Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's me. That's you. You were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So I was created through Christ, for Christ, held by Christ. That's lordship. And in his lordship and in his goodness, he says, you can make choices within these parameters. You can make choices, but I'm Lord. And how you handle my lordship determines where your eternity will be. And so he, he has the power in Luke's gospel alone over the weather, over sea, over wildlife, over demonic spirits, over healing, and we see here over he has all power and all authority. So let's put these two words together. They have to go together. If Jesus is ever going to be good news, they have to go together. Because if he's not Lord, he's just compassionate. That means he cares, but he can't do anything about it. If he's Lord and he's not compassion, that means he can do whatever he wants about it, but he just doesn't care. So he's a compassionate Lord. So we break down that he's Lord, and that is far beyond our comprehension. And in his lordship, there's no division, there's no separation, there's no parts or pieces. He's whole. So in his lordship, his compassion means he puts these together in how he ministers to you. I want you to understand this. Jesus feels 
feels compassion for you. That's the key. He's not sorry. He doesn't have sorrow for you. He doesn't, he doesn't have pity for you. Nah, you're not Lord, so you don't really get it. Sorry about that. He doesn't have sadness for you. It's compassion. It means he feels. I've wrestled with this for a long time. Even as a kid, before I knew Christ as my savior, I wrestled with this. Because I've read a lot of stories of martyrs. Not every night, but a lot of different nights throughout the weeks, we'll, we'll read stories of martyrs as a family and just those that have given their life that most people don't even know who they are. You realize that <clears throat> there's a lot of people in our history that have died a more painful, agonizing death than Jesus did. A lot. I think of one young girl, all she had to do was say, that Bible was not mine. That's all she had to say. But they built her into a brick wall and, and put the last one over her face. There's no knowledge if she starved or suffocated. Left her there. So, so when Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because of the anxiety or the, 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 the anticipation, not anxiety, but the anticipation of what is about to come, it wasn't because he was beaten with whips and nailed to a cross with thorns on his head. A few years ago, this, I felt like God really revealed what it was for him to be compassionate Lord. It was on the cross, the full wrath of God was poured upon him. Why? Because he became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So when he became sin, in that moment, every pain, every worry, every fear, every doubt, every death, every hurt I've ever experienced in my life, Jesus felt it in that moment. Magnified by every human that's ever walked the face of the earth past, present, and future. I can't even handle mine, let alone yours and mine, let alone all of yours and mine. I mean, I would, I would crush under that. I would die in that pain. And yet to be sin, he had to feel the repercussions and the consequence and the pain that comes with sin. It comes to kill, steal, and destroy. There is no joy. There is no goodness in it. And he felt every bit of that on the cross. So when, when it says he's a compassionate Lord, he knows every tear that you've ever shed and will shed. He actually knows it deeper than you will because you won't get to the point of resisting to the shedding of your own blood. And he takes that all upon him in this insignificant place called Nain to a widow that most would cast off as not important, not meaningful, and I believe this is why. I believe it happens in this way because, because so often I feel like that widow in name. Insignificant, not important enough for God to make a deal about me. My parents divorced when I was about four or five years old. Horrible, fighting, yelling, screaming, all the stuff that you think goes with that. 
My dad remarried shortly thereafter to a woman that did not like me. She'd fix food for everybody else, but I was on my own. Had two stepbrothers and stepsister that tormented and tortured me. If they ever could get me away from my family, my brothers, they would hold me down and just beat the living fire out of me. Dad divorced and married shortly thereafter that. So the time I was in third grade, he was on his third marriage. She had a stepbrother, or she had a, step, she had a son, my little stepbrother. And he was prized everything, and so it was, again, the same roller coaster. I was 13 years old. My older, I have uh, an older sister and two older brothers. But Stoney, that I talked about last week, he and I are a little bit closer, four years apart. So he and I went to my mom on Thanksgiving when I was 13. My mom had lots of different issues. On this particular night, she tried to take her own life by overdosing. And I remember when the, the police and the paramedics, they all busted in through the door. And they ran and took my mom and took her to the hospital and, and saved her. I remember walking outside, screaming and cussing out God. Because I've been praying for nine years that he would fix my family. He would, he would somehow put my mom and dad back together. But he ignored me, and I was insignificant, and I was pointless to him, so I was done with God. And I ran from that. But this story shows us that in the kingdom of heaven, none are insignificant. No one is obscure, and no one is a waste. And so often we, we feel like God doesn't love me. I know, he, I know he loves that person. I mean, look at them. They're awesome. I'm not so much. Look at their social media. They win everything. They have the greatest everything. No one puts them on social media that their kids struck out. Ah, junior flunked school again. <laughs> Praise. But we live in fear. First John 4, 18, the fear. <clears throat> yes, First John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. You see, the opposite of love is fear, not hate, anger, or bitterness. So when someone's acting hateful and anger and bitterness, it's because they're in a place of fear. They don't need your vengeance. They need Jesus's love. And so when they're lashing out at you, you don't have to be angry back. You can have compassion. You can respond in, in God's grace. And here's what takes place. For this widow to experience the goodness and the compassion of God, she had to take death outside the gate. For you and I to experience the compassion of God, we have to take death, sin, sorrow, fear, hurt, and pain outside the gate of our hearts and, and give it to him. But we're terrified. We, that pain we buried that bad boy and we, we put it way down deep into our lives. We've covered it with all sorts of addictions. We've covered it with all sorts of medications. We've covered it with all sorts of hobbies, with all sorts of comforts, our jobs, our relationships, our finances, our food. We've covered that up. And it's just a, it's just a bump in our heart. And we think, I don't have to deal with that. And we believe Satan's lies. Just hide it. Just hide it. Bury it. Don't, don't uncover it. It's too hard. It's going to be too painful. You're going to cry, not just cute romantic movie cry. You're an ugly cry. And what will they think of you then? And Jesus is saying, listen, 
that's where I'm at. What you've buried, that's where I'm at. I'm right there because on the cross, I absorbed it. I took it. I took God's wrath. Do you understand what the full wrath of God being poured out on Jesus means? It means he has zero left to be angry with you. It was all given to Jesus. So he's not mad at you. In all the pain and suffering that you've buried, Jesus said, I'm there with my arms open to receive you and give you life, to give you healing, to give you faith, to give you forgiveness. But we have to take it outside the city. We have to take it to him. And what we see is that that Jesus has accomplished all of these in a story that has become too familiar that we skip over at times. He's a compassionate Lord, ready to engage in conversation with you, engage to to meet you. (laughs) The fun thing about this is, Nain is really not too far off where Elijah met a widow who had lost her son in the Old Testament. And really what we're seeing is it all points to another who lost their son, their only son. And Christ conquered the grave. He conquered death so that you and I would have real life. This This creates worship. Father, I pray that we would worship. Not just in this moment, while we attend and are here at a church. But Father, that our worship would be an extension of what we read at the very beginning in Lamentations. That your goodness is new. Your faithfulness is new every, every day. So, Father, I pray that if we're here struggling with our fear and our anxiety, we would take it outside of the gate of our lives and our hearts, and we would surrender that to you. We'd bring it to the compassionate Lord. So I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed, just... Keep your eyes closed for a moment. It goes back to familiarity. Sometimes church becomes very familiar and we kind of have a a routine that we go through. But you realize church is the gathering of the saints to not be sponges that only take in, but actually do what God's called us to do. So right now, this is actually one of the most impactful, important parts of the worship service. You get to have a conversation with God. You're not having a conversation with me any longer. You get to have one with God. You've buried stuff that you can't even remember. And you're going to ask him to search you and seek you to see if there's anything offensive inside of you you want to please him and you want to be healed from those things you don't want them to linger so interact have a real conversation we just call it prayer with the king of kings and ask him to reveal those to you and then there's going to be a song being sung and played and 
And at some point in time, you join in that. That is where worship starts. And you see how that is a propulsion into your week of worship. Not an ending when you say amen at the end of the service. It's a, it's a beginning of being the body of Christ, being the church launched into obedient service. So don't, don't be familiar with this area. Make this new and fresh. Father, I pray that we would worship in all that we do and say. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.